welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. What's your name? Snake. No, not that name. You're not a snake, and I'm not an ocelot. We're men with names. My name is Adamska. What's yours? John. Very well, John. Plain name. But I won't forget it. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Way to Fall, the seventh episode on 2004's Metal Gear Solid 3. We worked through the end of the gameplay last time, but frankly, we were too inconsolable to push forward. Rip the boss. But there's still a lot of story to discuss after the game's climax. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So today's episode is a bit on the shorter side of things. So we're going to uh, catch up on some listener responses before we dive into the ending of MGS3. Um, I'm going to summarize these instead of read them in full. Uh, but our first came from Wazistifeles, um, who e- emailed us back at the end of May when he started listening. And he wanted to not well actually us, but he was actually pointing out that when we talked about the Mantis fight in MGS1, that there is a way to defeat him without... Um, moving the controller port from player one to player two. That is, there are statues in the boss arena that are uh, facing a certain way. And I believe if you shoot them, um, you can make them turn around and that'll allow you to, you know, not fall under uh, Mantis's control in terms of not being able to shoot him or blacking out to the Hideo screen. Um, I think I had vaguely heard about that uh, prior um, to doing this podcast, but it's just not something I have ever done or known. Um, MGS1 isn't a game I've really revisited recently, so um, that one kind of slipped our mind. So I really appreciate you uh, pointing that one out. It would make sense that, that there would be a, a PC-specific way to, to defeat Mantis, considering you can't switch controller ports on a, on a PC, at least not in 1998. So that makes sense. Yeah, was this the uh pointed out that this is definitely true on the PS1 and PC versions, but he wasn't able to confirm whether that's the case for Twin Snakes or not on the GameCube. My response is, who care? Yes. About, about Twin Snakes, not about that email. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, understood. Understood. <laughs> um, the next one is from Joe Lopez, um, who has been at least uh, experiencing the Metal Gear Solid franchise since 1998. Um, he says the first one really frustrated him. Um, the second one intrigued him. And then it was the third one that kind of blew him away and made him a Metal Gear fan for life. Um, he, you know, specifically when talking about MGS2, he talks about the opening with Snake uh, walking on the bridge and smoking the cigarette before he does his little stealth, uh, you know, bungee jump. Uh, so it's just kind of acknowledging his journey, uh, where he's been on and how MGS3 kind of hit him like, you know, a ton of bricks in terms of it being a masterpiece that he got for 20 bucks, uh, a little bit after its release. So, uh, appreciate you sharing that, Joe. Um, and then, uh, 
Uh, we got a theory here from Chris Delk. Um, I think it's not his theory, but one that he's heard goes or go around. And it, that is that Operation Snake Eater or the game Metal Gear Solid 3 is actually the VR experience of Punished or Venom Snake from MGS5. Um, a couple of info, you know, evidence or data points in support of this he mentions is that the calorie mate which is one of the you know food items you can get in mgs3 was not invented until 1983 which you know mgsv is a 1984 set game and then he also says that major zero mentions a 007 film that hasn't been made yet um i couldn't actually confirm uh what what this was referencing uh because um if you do google james bond i only really remember the um, from Russia with love conversation, which I think should have been out by August of 1964. I believe so. Yeah. But that also does tie into the fact that I believe Ian Fleming had all of his books out by, uh, 1964. So, uh, if there was another title mentioned between say major zero and snake that, um, you know, it could have been a book that hadn't been, um, created into a movie yet so definitely possible i don't you know don't want to say it's not true uh but i just couldn't recall what that other james bond film reference was um in general you know there's a similar theory that uh twin snakes which again who cares is actually Raiden doing uh the vr of shadow moses ahead of the events of metal gear solid 2 um i think those things are fun theories they're not things i necessarily subscribe to um just because i think there is as much as Metal Gear Solid cares about canon and storytelling in that sense, I do believe the games we see are roughly the story that actually played out in these existences. But I do like that you can layer on um, those kind of readings. That is something that MGS does just by the nature of how it engages with the game and the story it's laying out. I, I do personally like, I've always liked the uh, the Twin Snakes is Raiden's VR thing if only because it really explains the sort of awe he has for snake because snake in that game is like um like snake in general is like just at the on the on the verge of being like a caricature which is i think what we like about him Mm -hmm. but like twin snake snake like is doing like might as well be like doing he's doing anime shit all the time and like if you played that and thought it was real events you'd be like like this is the greatest soldier this is the greatest hero of all time it's almost like um, the like very shallow Hollywood adaptation of the original Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, yeah. Um, by adding in a bunch of flair, and you know, uh, Solid Snake in Twin Snakes does a bunch of acrobatics and aerobics that you wouldn't, it didn't really seem appropriate for the Solid Snake character we knew. Yeah. Um, but would definitely fit in more with kind of Raiden, who is definitely a little more agile and um, limber in that sense. So that also ties in with the uh, the fan theory that Revengeance is. Uh, I've seen this before. I think you retweeted it, that Revengeance is a, as a Raiden fan game made by Otacon. Yes. Which is true. Yeah. I love that one too. Um, that's a really great thing. Um, I just checked every, every named bond work that Fleming released, except for the man with the golden gun and Octopussy in the living daylights was released before 1964. You only live twice was released in 1964. I'm not sure when. So yeah, anything, anything and anything that he would reference by that point would have been out. Yes. Um, 
And I want to say, if we're saying uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, we know is in 1984. I think the Bond movie that came out before and after it would put it in the last two Roger Moore movies, because um, I believe A View to a Kill was 1985, and then Octopus was probably 1983. That sounds right. Um, so that's probably the Bond movies that are right around the events of Metal Gear Solid Five. And then our last listener response is someone who has to listen to every episode, our uh, sound <laughs> editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Um, he actually uh, found another note um, about what the boss's white sneaking suit could mean. Um, and he pointed out that in Buddhism, the color white also means death, and white attributes have often been used for ritual samurai suicide, uh, seppuku, which, you know, a lot of people know that term, um, especially with this game already invoking uh, Buddhist themes, especially with the sorrow battle, and just the fact that it's, you know, a game out of Japanese culture. Um, this seems infinitely plausible to me as being part of, uh, you know, the design choices with the boss and her white sneaking suit. And with that, let's wrap up the final events of Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Are you okay? Snake? Yeah. So we pick up today after Snake killed the boss. While that moment was incredibly sublime, there's not much time to hang around. With MIGs due any moment to bomb them to Kingdom Come, Snake returns to the WIG so him and Eva can make their escape. Snake barely has a chance to take off his equipment before a downed engine heralds the arrival of Ocelot for one last showdown. Aboard one of the hovercrafts, he rams open the side door to the WIG and leaps in. Before Snake can get to his feet, Ocelot grabs all of Snake's equipment and throws it out of the plane. Snake and Ocelot engage in a half-CQC, half-street brawl fistfight while Eva tries to get the wig into the air. Ocelot acquits himself quite well, showing off how he picked up some new moves. Was the boss secretly training him during these events? Hmm. Eventually, the two fight to a standstill, and Ocelot brings out his revolver to end it. Eva grabs her single-action army, which Snake had given her during the escort mission, and tosses it to Snake. Both combatants empty their chambers on each other, only to find both are empty. What do you say to one last showdown? Yeah, all right. Ocelot removes the bullet hanging from his necklace, the same bullet that jammed on him in Virtuous Mission when he first met Snake, and the same one he tried to put in Snake again before the fugitive dam jump sequence. Snake hands Ocelot his own gun. Ocelot puts the single bullet into one of the two guns and does a little cup game thing where he juggles and switches the guns behind his back and lays them on the ground as the player has one last gameplay cho choice to make. Do you pick the gun up on the left or the one on the right? I always go with the one on the right because that's how you unlock the single action army revolver uh, for subsequent playthroughs starting with Virtuous Mission. The gun on the left, however, is the one with the bullet in it. Yeah, that's what I usually go with that one because I, I like the, uh, I don't know, we'll talk about it. I'm not sure what, I go back and forth on what ending I like most. What, what, what resolution of this I like most, I guess. After you pick up a gun, which is the last time you will control Snake, R1 triggers aside, you draw down with Ocelot. A gun will eventually go off, but no one gets hit either way. A dud! Wait, no, sorry, wrong game. It's a blank! Ocelot laughs. Him and Snake share a smile before Ocelot leaves the way he came in. Dislocates both of his shoulders horribly and dies and drowns. Yeah. <laughs> Till we meet again. 
John. Real quickly, let's take note of this blank bullet. This is the bullet Asla tried to put in you twice before. Again, during Virtuous Mission and during the chase in the sewers. This totally missed me the first um, <coughs> couple times through. What I should have been focusing in on is that every time Ocelot had Snake dead to rights, he, well, didn't. Foreshadowing for some plot twist yet to come, perhaps. With Ocelot on his merry way, Eva and Snake return to their departure. It takes them both to get the wig into the air, Ocelot took out an engine on entry, and Eva and Snake get to share a laugh. For a second, Migs come for the wig. What is this naming convention? No offense, Mother Russia. And it looks like they're going to blow our heroes out of the sky until they pull back at the last second. Khrushchev gets credit for pulling off the planes, which you can take to mean any number of things. Not super germane to the rest, so no real need to speculate. Now we get to the Mission D briefing, which, like the Bond movie Snake Eater borrows from, becomes quite literal. Though by the end, it's Snake who is metaphorically de-pantsed by the events about to transpire. We start in Alaska, funny enough. It's where the Solid series started, too. Snake and Eva are due for Galena Base, or at least Snake is, but instead of heading straight there, they take in a night of wine, relaxation, and carnal knowledge all to the tune of Don't Be Afraid, which we played you into this segment with. Sung by Elisa Fiorillo and written and composed by Rika Muranaka, who you may know from The Best Is Yet To Come and Don't Be Afraid Of Yesterday. Or sorry, don't say goodbye to yesterday. No, wait, you can't say goodbye to yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the sexual tension has been building throughout this game. While Snake was aloofish to start, he slowly opened up to Eva with each moment, and they do legitimately have a passionate night up here in Alaska. Snake gets a codec call during their lovemaking, but Snake ditches his radio into the fire. One wonders what possible information could have been waiting for him at the other end of that call. Not to do a discourse, and I don't want to compare an adult video game with massive corporate media for all ages made by the mouse, but part of why I'm vibing so hard with MGS broadly is that it is legit horny, and not just super hot people being otherwise sexless. I, I may be overcorrecting and alighting a more critical eye for how MGS handles sexuality, but it is legitimately refreshing to see characters want to fuck each other. Oh, and speaking of fucking each other, it's time for Eva to fuck you over. Scholars tell us that the first spy in history was the snake in the book of Genesis. In that story, it was Eve who was tempted by the snake in the Garden of Eden. But this time around, it was I who tempted the snake and got away with the forbidden fruit of knowledge. Forgive me, snake. Snake awakes to daylight. The fire in the hearth is out and Eva is gone. All that's left is a picture of him, taken from the caves, and a reel of audio, which Snake starts playing 
lights up a cigar, and prepares himself to be engulfed in truth. Eva's recording fades into actual narration as she starts spilling the beans on what really happened during Operation Snake Eater. First, an admission of her own. She wasn't working for the KGB, nor was she an NSA defector. She worked for the People's Republic of China, and more specifically, the Chinese philosophers. They too had gotten hint that the U.S. and Russian philosophers were making a bid for the legacy, and they took their shot as well. Tatiana expected she would have to eliminate Adam before meeting Snake at Rasviat earlier in the game, but he never showed, according to her, so she was able to get in with Snake pretending to be Eva. Of course, we know that Adam was Ocelot, who did show up just the next morning when you had your shootout with the Ocelot unit early on. Look, I'm just digging how nicely architected the spy story is. I don't. Do we know who the actual Eva was? I don't think so. No, I don't think that character ever gets explained uh, beyond uh, Tatiana taking on the personality. But yeah, um, because also I think we mentioned uh, that the two NSA defectors referenced were real people, and one of them was not mm. Revolver Ocelot, obviously. So um, yeah, so maybe I, I, I'm wondering about that. Yeah, let me look that up real quick. Mm. No, nothing. Yeah, I really think Eva's the only Eva there is is the one we know. Uh, we'd never have any idea if the other one exists or matters to the events of the game or the series, to be honest. Oh, <laughs> no. Go for it. Uh, Skullface might be Eva. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's a, that's a theory. I, I, I could buy that, personally. Yeah, that's definitely an explanation that can kind of make sense to me. So Skullface, Skullface's origins are still slightly mysterious. Yeah, and yeah, but, 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 but he'd be about the right age, so yeah. And we know he was following Snake um, as part of cleanup behind him, based mm-hmm. on what MGSV mm-hmm. tells him. So mm-hmm. him actually kind of working in some capacity as well, um, I can totally see that. So um, that's really cool. I actually kind of like that theory, even though I don't know how well like actual facts and you know timelines line up. I'm not a huge fan of retro of retconning mm-hmm. for because that's what four does. That that that's the thing four does. I don't like. That's the, the only reason I don't like four that much. Is it tries to fit characters from other games into the mythology and into ways? But yeah, we know already that Skullface was in Selino Yarsk, so like that makes sense. I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like anything I that, that fleshes out Skullface because I think Skullface is a top ten Metal Gear character. So I love Skullface. Uh, Skullface is great. Eva goes on to say she took the Philosopher's Legacy, which the boss had given to Snake, and the Shagohad test data, which she got from Sokolov. With these funds, the Chinese philosophers could catch up in the Cold War arms race. Their own nuclear program was floundering after the USSR stopped supporting Chinese development. Her final objective was to kill Snake, leaving no memory or evidence behind, but she couldn't do it. And no, not because she had the Bond girl change of heart or out of some big love for Snake, but for the boss— And I don't even think it's just because of Snake's relationship to the boss. I think Eva herself respected both who the boss was and all she had done, even in death. The boss saw through Eva from the get-go, both being raised by the philosophers, and was able to use her for her own ends. The boss wanted Snake to know the truth and possibly even fight to change the times. For that, she needed Eva to live, which is why she let Eva go back in Groznygrad to tell all this to Snake. We see Eva speed off here, and the microfilm explode, and the scene fades out. But there was more audio on the tape. We just have a quick change of setting to... 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Snake, listen to me. 
She didn't betray the United States. No, far from it. She was a hero who died for her country. As Eva continues, we see Snake entering the Oval Office in his official military uniform, full on with beret. Snake's support staff is there as well as he comes face to face with the heads of the U.S. security state, first and foremost, the current president of the United States of America, the Chad, Lyndon B. Johnson himself. Set your Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at TV meme to stun folks, because here it is. You are above even the boss. I hereby award you the title of Big Boss. The great accent that he has, the really, yeah, really terrific. It sounds just like LBJ. (laughs) (laughs) Give a quick shout out to veteran voice actor Richard McGonagall, voicing LBJ there. The president gets a reluctant handshake and a quick photo op with Snake, I mean, Big Boss. And before we get into the tragic ending, we got to point out that the absolute best, in my opinion, secret R1 trigger scene is right here. While shaking the president's hand, if you go into first person mode, you can see Ocelot floating in the window behind you, giving you the old finger guns. Both extremely goofy and again, another tell about Ocelot's true loyalties. Though if you triggered this the first time through, you might be expecting him to jump in and fight Snake one last time. But alas... He has his, uh, he's wearing his Gru outfit, outfit too, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the way the the scenery looks behind him, it's just like a glowing yellow. It doesn't look like he's like standing on grass or anything. It's just like literally his visage like floating, uh, floating out in the ether. Yeah. Um, so it's not like he's physically there outside the White House pointing at you. That's what I think, yeah. Yeah. Because the idea of a, of, a, of a Russian operative walking around in full uniform <laughs> literally right outside the Oval Office seems kind of a... Right. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's just so out of nowhere. It doesn't really fit into the reality of any of this stuff, but um, it's fun. If anything, if you want to go back to that, um, MGS3 is uh, Venom Snake uh, doing a VR. Yeah. this That actually makes sense with this scene, because then Ocelot, who's in charge of Venom Snake, may have inserted himself into that goofily like that, because um, he is super dramatic. Which is very funny to imagine MGS5 Ocelot being like, I'm going to trick him. I'm going to make him really lose his shit. Yeah. <laughs> Check this out, Huey. <laughs> During the most like traumatic moments of his life. Huey, stop torturing that guy and help me do this. <laughs> that's what that that's why Cause is mad at him, by the way. He's not <laughs> just they, he doesn't care about any stuff. Snake. He's just like, you you're ruining the purity of this canon. I must I have to defeat you. Cause is a as a message board. He's a moderator on a message board. Yeah, he's a canon, he's a canon guy. When the president is done, the rest of the top brass, looks like some DOD people and the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence, try to get their handshake with the newly minted Big Boss as well. But with a teary look of determination, Big Boss ignores them all and walks straight out. These top men don't even let the insult sink in before they start conspiring about how they need people like Big Boss in every division of the army, someone who is half spy and half soldier. Snake even stiffs Zero on his way out, and Paramedic watches worriedly as Snake leaves them all behind. Eva kicks back in here with the last of the audio I mentioned. She reveals the plan all along was to get the boss into Volgan's ranks so she could get the Philosopher's Legacy into American hands and then destroy Sokolov's doomsday weapon. This included the boss's defection and her betrayal of Snake on that rope bridge at the end of Virtuous Mission. 
All that went to shit real bad, though, when Volgan decided to use a Davy Crockett and destroy Sokolov's old research facility. With the U.S. nuke detonated on Russian soil, possibly due to an American, the boss, and U.S. aircraft caught on radar at the time, things looked really bad for America in their quest for the legacy. The USSR demanded restitution, if not blood. So the mission was heavily revised and reimagined in that week after Virtuous Mission, likely with input from the boss using her moles to communicate back with Zero and the DCI. It may even have been Ocelot. To satisfy the USSR, Volgan and the boss had to pay, and the US still wanted to get the legacy and destroy the Shagohad. I'll just let Eva take it from here. The boss wouldn't be allowed to come back home alive, and she wouldn't be allowed to kill herself. Her life would be ended by her most beloved disciple. That was the way the government wanted it. That was the mission she was given, and she had no choice but to carry it out. Her death at your hands was a duty she had to fulfill. Out of duty, she turned her back on her own comrades. A lesser woman would have been crushed by such a burden. The boss gave up her reputation, both in America and in Russia, where she'd be believed to be a traitor and a war criminal, respectively. The mother of special forces and the greatest American soldier? That meme would be wiped from the face of the earth. All her loved ones, like, say, that Dr. Strangelove character we briefly mentioned last time, well, they're going to have to pick up the pieces all on their own. Snake. <laughs> History will never know what she did. No one will ever learn the truth. Her story, her debriefing, will endure only in your heart. Everything she did, she did for her country. She sacrificed her life and her honor for her native land. She was a real hero. She was a true patriot. <laughs> we'll unpack all this in a second, but let's run down the last few things here. We get a timeline of events following this game, which I believe is the first in the series. With the big notes being Eva disappearing in Hanoi, the U.S. getting back all of the legacy, and then rebranding the American philosophers to the Patriots. We also see Big Boss formed Foxhound in 1971. The big one is the last, as the screen says simply, 1972, the Les Enfants Terribles project. The sons of Big Boss are born. And finally, we have Ocelot revealing his true loyalties, first betraying the Gru to the KGB, and then betraying both of them to America, which we went over before. What he does say here is that he, not Eva, walked away with the legacy. What Eva obtained was a fake. My own theory here is that in that final Ocelot snake dust-up, our tricksy Russian made a switch. We also find out it was just half the legacy, and that the KGB probably has the rest. And of course, the other thing Ocelot walked away with? Designs for a brand new mobile nuclear tank. I don't want to spoil anything, so let's just call it Gettlemere. And that, my friends, is a wrap on the story of MGS3. 
So we'll come back next time to wrap up on themes and I can carry forward the memes of our previous finales, but I just want to use some time here to talk about the ending of this video game, which, you know, I get sick of constantly saying this, is considered one of the best endings in video game history. Uh, the first thing I wanted to mention is the boss's ending and that it actually parallels another giant aughts uh, pop culture moment that is the story in The Dark Knight. And I'm only bringing this up because Kojima himself has made this comparison to the story of MGS3. And uh, The Dark Knight came out four years after um, MGS3 was released to the public. Um, but basically the whole theme behind the Dark Knight is you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Or, you know, in a more heroic framing, you have Michael Caine saying something like, uh, you know, Bruce, you know, Bruce is not being a hero. He's being something more by using Batman as someone who can take, you know, public disdain or, you know, the hatred of an entire nation just to, you know, further the common good. And that's something that's actually going on, you know, quite a bit with the boss where she's not being a hero. She's being something more. She's using her position and becoming a hated martyr just so, you know, to further the ends of whatever you want to call it, the patriots, the philosophers, America, um, the, you know, American military or security state. But ultimately, she is doing something beyond the confines of the traditional hero who's usually heralded by the public um, and their followers as this great person. Um, but instead, they're kind of doing the opposite of that, um, the quote unquote dark night, so to speak. Um, and then just another similar example, not necessarily to those themes, but there's a lot of plot similarities to uh, Casino Royale, uh, which came out a year after this game. A lot of it being um, the main character being betrayed at the end, but it kind of leading into um, a bigger story about a you know evil sinister organization and all that stuff. Um, again, not really anything I say. Oh, one is borrowing from the other. I think their productions are too closely tied to you know one to inform the other. Um, but it's just. A very similar stories kind of happening at the same time, the way we talked about how, you know, like MGS2 was obviously existing in the wake of like Neon Genesis Evangelion and The Matrix and how they were always kind of talking at each other, even if they weren't really informing each other directly at, you know, at all points, so to speak. I, I'm just thinking this, but I, I want to talk about uh, how that sort of... And again, I'm, I'm going to count Metal Gear in this because Kojima is such an American, Amerophile, mm -hmm. that he would be tapped into this cultural thing. I'm wondering if, because this is all post-Iraq War stuff, post the torture discourse and 24, 24 style stuff. I'm wondering if that's sort of reflection of the, this American ideal of, of, of there not being like heroes anymore. Of there be, you have to be like, you have to sacrifice something morally or ethically to be a heroic person in this tort in this modern torture environment. And like, there's no, there's no clean resolution for heroic endings anymore. Like MGS one mm -hmm. or the first, the first matrix movie has a very uh, openly heroic ending. Yeah. Ending. Yeah. And so I wonder if that's, that's sort of like, and I mean, Kojima would be, I think a little more tuned in on that because like, he would also understand that that's the nature of like, military service there's no there are very few noble and happy military men and women like that's not how you end those careers if you manage to end those careers it's it's with regrets and with un unbelievable amounts of baggage and ptsd and like i wonder if jason that's kind of the jason Bourne thing of like every jason Bourne movie ends with him being 
like getting the the singer, like the Metal Gear style, like, mm-hmm. but something else is happening too. And like, I'm, I'm thinking specifically Casino Royale because that's a very Fleming ending. Yes, absolutely. And it's, but it's not a Bond ending. Right. Bond endings, Bond endings are always triumphant until basically until then, or except for with one notable exception. Yeah. Which is maybe the most comparable movie to Casino Royale of the entire Bond um, pantheon. Yeah, we remember that part in Casino Royale where he uh, has someone dub over his voice for like 45 minutes. That was great. Um, <laughs> Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of the strangest big budget movies I've ever seen. I love it. It's a great movie. But yeah, like you, you, you're that, that seems to be a thing sort of coming around in not immediately after 9-11, but more after the torture discourse and like... There's a really weird thing. This is going to get a little, maybe a little more political than we wanted, but it is a Metal Gear podcast. Mm-hmm. There was a weird thing now where we look back on the Iraq war, like everyone knew it was wrong. And it's like, you know, that's not incorrect, but there wasn't like an open, it wasn't like Vietnam where it was like public outcry. It was more just like this quiet, like, oh, this probably isn't right, but we, we simply have to do it. It simply must be done. It felt like a reaction that is required after 9-11, even yeah. though. Even though it had nothing to do with it, I, but it, it felt like, yeah, like, like the nation stiff off her lip. It was very British. It was a very British reaction for us to just bite our lips, bite our tongues and be like, well, we must, we simply must do this. This simply must happen. Yeah. No. And like, that's kind of the Dark Knight ending of like, like he has to be something that has to be done. There's no, it's not heroic. It's not even like a, a heroic sacrifice or a choice. It's simply duty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is very much the boss is very much that's how her ending very much is portrayed. Yeah, of just like sort of stealing yourself to 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 sacrifice yourself. I, I guess not sacrifice, but like do your job when you have to. Like it's it's a it was a very very mid two thousands sort of finish your mission. That's like all it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say I think that uh, that reflects well with the in game narrative as well because it seems to be invoking the idea that the you know, World War II era and the Cobra unit and the boss as the mother of special forces, that was the age of heroes Mm -hmm. for this um, continuity. But now with the events of MGS3 and everything we know about what happens from here on out, it's no longer the age of heroes. It's the age of snakes and metal gears. It's, it's a broken world fundamentally. It's a, it's an era of mission complete. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> That's actually a great way to phrase it. Yeah. I, I, and I want to say again, I, I, sometimes Metal Gear people have this tendency to overcredit Kojima for that stuff. I'm sure, I'm sure that that, like, again, the, the boss's story was, I'm sure that was mostly his idea. I don't mean to say that he was like carefully analyzing the pop cultural landscape and like making this extremely astute reading. It's more just like subconsciously he kind of picked up on that. I think that's how a lot of art works mm-hmm. is that it's sort of a subconscious thing that you just sort of pick up, you pick on undercurrents, you pick up on undercurrents, you, maybe even Jungian art undercurrents. If we're going to get real out, out there with this one. Yeah. That sort of, but like this game came out in 2004, you know, came out a year and a half after the, after the invasion of Iraq. Like I, I know Kojima saw that. I know that that was part of, I was around. I remember. So like, yeah, that, that I feel like that's definitely at least subconsciously playing in here. And mm-hmm. that's what art is. That's, you know, it's, it, it is an expression of the subconscious in its most primal form. Yeah. And I know I'm someone who's, who's one to maybe give Kojima more credit than maybe he deserves. But I think in general, when he's 
you know, explicitly or, you know, implicitly taking on imperialism. Um, I know it's layered beyond just American imperialism, which is what we focus on because, you know, that's kind of what we know. And also that's the dominating force in the world. But he's also commenting on Japanese imperialism. And that's why I tend to, like a lot of the political, uh, you know, themes are ones I tend to think are more sincere coming from him as opposed to more the, because I definitely put a leftist reading on a lot of stuff in Metal Gear that I know Kojima is not thinking. Um, But I think a lot of the stuff in terms of critiquing war, the American war machine, and even the Japanese war machine and the post-war Japan, uh, I think those are things that I feel are definitely more authentic and him being a little more explicit in theme. Um, Whereas a lot of the other stuff is obviously me just being a person who sits here and navel gazes and loves to, you know, come up with shit that fits into my worldview in the context of Metal Gear. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. We're men with names. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. You've got a way to fall They'll tell you where to go But they won't know Sir You'd better take Tell you what they know, but they won't show. Oh, I've got something in my throat. And with that, on to the game. All right, I don't, I didn't like that transition. <laughs> And with that, let's wrap up the final events of Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater.